Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, unlike Old Testament, if you remember, I tried to make you memorize a chart. I didn't make you do that with the New Testament epistles. But we did want to at least understand the early epistles of Paul. We've taken these in chronological order, and the major epistles of Paul, the prison epistles of Paul, and we are currently in the pastoral epistles of Paul. We started with James, which of course, at least in how I presented it, predates the first epistle of Paul, which I believe is Galatians, to the churches of Galatia, as you remember. And then I hope to make some progress tonight here with the general epistles. And we will get through those, I trust, by the time we get to Christmas. These are called the general epistles, and we have one book that stands out as unique in terms of apocalyptic prophecy, and hopefully we'll have adequate time to deal with that. I had scheduled from the beginning to have the entire last Thursday on that one topic. I don't know that that's going to happen, but that was the plan. All right, let's dive into Titus, okay? We dealt with 1 Timothy, and we call that a pastoral epistle because Paul is writing to a pastor. The first one was Timothy. He was pastoring where and what city? Ephesus. And we dealt with a lot of the things that we could replicate in a study of Titus, but we won't. So I hope to get through Titus rather quickly. But you need the data because I know you data types want this, you accountant types. Three chapters, 46 verses, and in the Greek New Testament, 659 words in Koine Greek. And I hope that gives you a sense of comparison as you build your charts. 346, 659 for what it's worth. The author is stated, of course, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant, he calls himself, of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Of course, we're talking about Paul the apostle. We don't need to debate that, though there is some debate. I dealt with it last week as we talked about why people have a hard time seeing these pastoral epistles as genuinely Pauline, and it's not that many. I guess in increasing liberal progressive society, there are more, but we try to understand all of this, not within the framework of the book of Acts, but after the book of Acts. And that's why it is somewhat confusing for folks to find out how in the world Paul wrote these letters with all of the references that are in this book. But uh, we dealt with that enough, I believe, last time, at least with the time allotted. The date, I just will give you this in keeping with and in parallel with what we discussed in First Timothy, and that is that uh, we're going to shoot for about 63, 80, 63 from Ephesus. I put a question mark by that. While some are emphatic, we can't be completely emphatic because these travels, we don't have the framework of the book of Acts, but it seems as though that is a good guess, somewhere between his first and second Roman imprisonment. All right, the recipient is Titus. Now, when I use the word Titus, Please do not think of Titus, the famous Titus from history, which outside of the Bible, of course, is the Roman general who comes in and destroys the temple, which would be a great testimonial, I guess, if you got up at a youth rally and said, I destroyed Jerusalem, but now I'm a Christian. But that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about a guy that is also a Greek, obviously. He's got a Roman name, and uh, he's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts, which is very surprising to some because he's mentioned so often in Paul's letters. And in Paul's letters, we do learn that he's a Gentile. We should know that from his name, but we get that specified in Galatians chapter 2 verse 3, which states the fact that even on his journeys, he wasn't forced to be circumcised. Of course, any good Jewish boy would have been circumcised as an infant, but uh, he was not. He is a disciple of Paul, a convert, as he talks about the true son uh, that he has spiritually. When he uses those terms for Timothy and Titus, we know what he 
means. He went with Paul and uh, Barnabas to the Jerusalem council. I should mention one of the reasons some people think he's not mentioned by name in Acts is that some suggest that he's the brother of Luke and uh, that Luke in his deference to the others in the book of Acts didn't mention him by name. That's just a theory, but it is one that's out there and several people present it. He's Paul's messenger to Corinth. I don't know if we, we did spend a little bit of time and I guess I did mention it. Paul even talks about the fact that Titus is going back and forth, bringing a good report from Corinth to Paul. And you might remember that even in that statement about Paul, who was so discouraged in Second Corinthians chapter one, goes on to say in a couple chapters later, what a great thing it is that God who comforts the downcast comforted him by the coming of Titus. So Titus is an important player. It's mentioned in Galatians, Second Corinthians, Second Timothy, and obviously in the book of Titus. Paul takes Titus to Crete sometime after Acts, and no one knows how this church was founded. It was obviously, though, founded and in need of a pastor and some kind of assembling of order to the church, which is what this book is all about, as we'll see. But to get a sense of where that is, it's off the southern coast of Greece. You can see Athens just directly above the western side of the island of Crete. Sometimes when you think about it, I know sometimes I do, thinking back to the maps in the back of your Bible, I confuse it with the island of Cyprus, but it's much further west than that, uh, the island of Crete, which is south of Achaia and what is modern-day Greece, and of course Athens and Corinth, and you can see it there on the screen. There it is. I put a red box around it for you. Crete. So we have no record in the book of Acts of this island being evangelized. We don't know and don't have the hints within the book of Titus to tell you exactly how that happened. Lastly, I might just mention, as Paul speaks about relief for Titus, Titus is going to be relieved in his plans. It says in chapter 3, verse 12, and he's going to send Artemis or Tychicus to come and allow Titus to then travel to Nicopolis, which is where he is and writing this letter, and not where he's writing the letter, but where he's going to be. And he's decided that he's going to go from Ephesus or somewhere in Macedonia to spend the winter in Nicopolis. And we looked at that on the map last time we were together. Let's talk about the purpose of the book. It's pretty clear in the book in just reading the content, but it's even stated in the first chapter after the salutation and the introductory matter of the first four verses. It says, this is why I left you in Crete. And here it comes. Here's the purpose clause. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So apparently there's a lot of house churches in Crete. There's a lot of spread of evangelism in terms of personal one-on-one evangelism. They're grouping together as Christians on this island, which is rather large. And so Titus is going to go around as an emissary of the apostle Paul, and he is going to try to uh, assemble these churches in these particular cities by putting leaders, pastors in place. Now remember the word elder, pastor, and overseer, to use the translation from the ESV, those are all synonymous terms, all used synonymously as nouns and sometimes as verbs in, in their verbal form to describe what the pastors do. Two offices in the church, not four, the deacons, and uh, that's one category. Deacons are the ministerial leaders, and then you have the pastors that are described by three different words. Elders, uh, those aren't lay guys on a board. That's not what the Bible teaches. You can have those if you'd like, but we're talking about elders are pastors. Pastors are overseers. The old translation, the King James Version is bishop. They're all the same. So Titus is given the job to go around to all these converts in all these places and bring them together and appoint leaders so that there might be churches. So to set the church in order, and I say the church, I really should say churches because he's going to go from place to place around this very large island and make that happen wherever there are Christians. Simplified outline, and again, this is embarrassingly so, but very, very, very simple. Uh, Three things you can look at here. The leadership requirements, it looks a lot like 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
we see a lot of parallels. I brought you somewhat of a chart last time when we were studying First Timothy. So we get all of that repeated, sometimes in different words. Some are left out, others are added. The general concept of a high character and aptitude in these leaders is described. And then we get this instruction for groups, all these different groups for the men, for the women, for the younger, for the older, and you get all that laid out in chapter two. And then in chapter three, I just summarize it this way, so much about doing what is good and right, because Crete was a place where there's a lot of bad going on. It was a bit of the kind of the, the Las Vegas, you know, the Amsterdam of the ancient world, whatever you want to call it, a place where there's a lot of corruption. Matter of fact, the word in the ancient world for liar was Cretan. A Cretan was someone who, uh, and we still use that word as an idiom in English, but the idea of people that don't tell the truth. That's why the book starts by the way, with a statement about God who does not lie, which if you lived in Crete and you were getting a letter, you would get the sense, okay, I I get that. God stands in direct opposition to the culture in which this church uh, is founded. So that's the simplest outline you're ever going to see, unless you got a one-point outline for the book, which is not an outline. So we could have a two-point outline. Yes, you could, but I couldn't do it. So I got a three-point outline, three chapters, three points. Favorite things. I know you want to know, what are your favorite things about the book of Titus, Pastor Mike? I'm so glad you asked. Number one, I do love this, and you should love this too, and we've seen a bit of this theme in other books, and that is that there is a very, certainly in Titus, a very honest and assertive ministry that the Apostle Paul is not only demonstrating in his letter, but he's directing that kind of assertiveness in the church. He wants Titus to be that straightforward. Look at this statement in in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. It says, there are many who are insubordinate, which again, if you study the ancient culture of this island off the south part of Greece, it is known for its, its insubordination. It's known for its libertine spirit. It's known for its partying and its, its debauchery. And he says, there are many that are insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. That's what they're known for. A Cretan was a liar, especially those of the circumcision party. So there's even a false heretical movement within the church that are characterized by their sin. Uh, They must be silenced. I mean, that's a pretty strong mandate. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, they're in it for the money, Uh, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars. That was a famous phrase that was repeated here. That's what they were known for. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, you'd say in a modern day, certainly if you were trying to candidate for a job at a church that you may be going to Las Vegas to do ministry or whatever, but you don't want to lead with that. And, And yet, here's the Apostle Paul saying, it's true. That is true. Therefore, you ought to, in highlighting that characteristic of this church, you ought to rebuke them I love this, sharply, clearly. There ought to be no ambiguity about the fact that the way they live and what they do is not in keeping the grace of the gospel. And the whole point is that they can be sound in the faith. And I love that about the connection between faith, doctrine, orthodoxy, and orthopraxy, the things that you do. There should be that connection. And I love the fact that he's talking about things like lying and being evil and being lazy and being gluttons. And he says, I want you to rebuke them so they can be sound in the faith. And when you think of that, you think about someone in a class like this or a systematic theology class learning how to have good doctrine. Well, in this case, they're inseparable. Good doctrine, orthodoxy, should be certainly tied to and always connected to and commensurate with orthopraxy, the things that you do that demonstrate that. I love the honesty and the assertiveness. There may be times in your life, I hope that you are given the opportunity, whether it's in one-on-one situations or in leadership, whether it's in a teaching setting, a small group, whatever it is, that there are times when you see something that you know is not in keeping with sound doctrine, not just in terms of what you believe, but what you do, and you need to be willing to stand up and rebuke someone, which means you point out the wrong, you direct them in the right path, and you do it sharply, clearly, without ambiguity, so that people can be sound in the faith. 
Like in the Old Testament, we did our Old Testament DVR reading. There's a lot of that sense of your responsibility for not being clear about other people's issues. And that, for those particularly that are looked to for direction, it has to be a part of the burden that we feel in ministry. Makes me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And you're saying, well, that's what I want. I want a humble pastor. I want a humble Sunday school teacher. I want a humble small group leader. Well, that's true, and that's good, and we should have loving people that are leading. But he says this, I'm humble, this is how they claimed at least, when I'm face-to-face with you, but bold when I'm away. These letters that I write are pretty bold. He says, I beg you that when I'm present, I may not have to show my boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us as walking according to the flesh. I'm going to have to come and I'm going to have to be bold. I'm not saying we love that. We don't want to be argumentative as we learned in 1 Timothy, but what we do want to do is recognize that humility and meekness is not in some way in contradistinction to or somehow non-reconcilable to being very clear and bold and as this passage says, being willing to rebuke people sharply when they are out of step with what is true honest and assertive ministry. We need more of that. Hopefully that's one thing uh, you're finding here at Compass Bible Church. It's the reason your friends don't want to come here. Am I right about that? An assertive ministry. But it's honest. I don't want to die and go to heaven and say, well, you coddled them and you made them feel good about themselves. You never rebuke them sharply for their sin. And I hope you recognize your loving pastor here that, you know, this is not something that is, whether it's from my pulpit or whether it's from the ministry leaders that we have, that is something that, that is uh, revelant. As Paul said, I want to be meek, I want to be gentle, I want to be connected to our people, but when it comes to the truth, we better speak the truth. And when it comes to issues like someone who is in the church that's a liar, an evil beast, a lazy glutton, we need to be very, very sharp and direct. How about this? Very timely in our day. Subcongregational objectives. In chapter 2, starting in verse number 1, you have all of these categories, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. You have right there in the scripture a layout for a guy who's supposed to be concerned with setting up ministries and churches, thinking here, you know what? These folks have unique didactic needs. In other words, there's things that need to be taught in this person's life. And then there's another group, another demographic in your church, and these folks have special needs. They should be taught in these things. And then there's this group over here, and you ought to teach them in that way. There's a movement, and maybe I'm creating controversy. It doesn't need to be created because you haven't even heard of it. But there is certainly something going on in our evangelical undercurrent today called family-integrated churches. And family-integrated churches do not believe in sub-congregational ministry. They don't think it's the right thing to do. They don't think it, it comports with the picture of the dusty early church where everyone sat there with the kids in the pew. You know, they, they picture that. There weren't pews. But the idea of everyone just kind of being it. I'm not opposed to having family services. As a matter of fact, one of the family services we have every year is at Christmas Eve, which we're in the middle of planning right now. Those are the kinds of things that's fine. But to say that we have a youth ministry and that's wrong, which people are writing books today saying that is wrong, right? We shouldn't have that. I look to passages like this and saying, I don't see how you can somehow get from this kind of direction and not say the most efficient and effective way to do that is at least to break up the congregation in certain settings, at least. I'm not saying always. We don't segregate to the point of not knowing or connecting ever as a cross-generational group, but having ministries that are directed to, to, to groups of people that have specific demographic boundaries or definitions. I just think this is wrong. And I was encouraged as I did a little research to try and find who's writing kind of a counter-argument to this movement because it got very popular. Uh, depending on what groups you follow or track with or which blogs you read, this became very, uh, you know, a big in-your-face, you guys need to stop with youth ministry, you shouldn't have kids ministry, you shouldn't have Sunday school class, that break people up. I just think that 
not only is it a tertiary issue we should not be dividing over, I don't think you should be condemning a church that breaks their congregation up and says, we can do a good job directly addressing the needs of a young couples ministry or junior hires or sixth graders or whatever it might be. So anyway, that's one thing that I think is relevant. Certainly in our day, maybe 15 years ago, I wouldn't have brought that up as a favorite thing in this book, but it certainly is now. Thirdly, the call to good works. Every now and then I make the mistake of reading what people write about me on the internet, which is not a good idea. And there was a big thread that people were connecting me on, and I must have gotten 70 notifications in the last 24 hours. And I, and I made the mistake of, I didn't read them all, but I read some of them. And, and it's funny how you'll take a ministry like ours and condemn us as number one legalist. I bet you've heard that before, but I, I forgot how this gal put it, but the idea of just slamming us, our church, my pulpit as a, the, the idea of, of all about being saved by good works, which is, I hope, I mean, if you're here for two days, you understand we believe in the gospel of grace, right? You believe that. You understand that your pastor believes that. Uh, But anytime you start telling people, hey, you're a lazy glutton and we rebuke you sharply, then all of a sudden you get castigated as someone who's way off the rails and you don't understand that good works is not ever something that should be emphasized. Read the book of Titus, particularly the third chapter, and look through that chapter and see if you're not, I mean, you don't even have to get to the third chapter. Look at chapter two, which I think is what I quoted near the end of chapter two, and see how strongly these kinds of things are presented to us. You are called to live righteous lives. And the reason I think this is so firmly and sharply stated in Titus is because Crete was such a notoriously bad, notoriously bad place to live. In other words, there's so much, you know, debauchery in the town. So the worse the culture gets, the more focus there's got to be in showing that the outgrowth of grace is to do good, to do the right thing, to do good works. And I think as you look at the forecast of where things are going, as the Bible says, things are going to go from bad to worse. People aren't going to going to endure sound doctrine. Well, then I think we ought to be the kinds of people that are known more and more as the culture deteriorates for being people that promote good works. Are we saved by good works? Well, that's what they're saying about us online. Of course, that's not the case. But we understand that those who are saved are going to be, let me put it this way, this is a bad word. People think it's bad. They should be pressured within the church to say, I've got to do what's good. I got to do what's right. I mean, that's the kind of thing in the scripture that that godly peer pressure, not called that, it's called stirring one another up to love and good deeds, but that kind of pressure ought to be there. And you can find folks that want to find a church that didn't feel any of that pressure. I don't want to leave any sermon feeling any of that pressure. Well, unfortunately, if you're in a place like Crete, uh, you will begin to reflect the culture, and that's not a good thing. What does it say in Titus 2, 11 through 14? For the grace of God has appeared, which is what we teach, what you believe, I hope, what we are all into. We believe we're saved not by works, but by grace. It's bringing salvation for all people, all kinds of people, even the Greeks, the Romans, the Jewish people, the barbarians, the Scythians, the slave, the free, and even the people that are lazy gluttons, at least formerly so in Crete. But what does that grace do? It trains us, it exhorts us, it calls us, it commands us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, which is not what Crete was known for self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, right now in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Can't wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Interesting statement there about the deity of Christ, by the way, who gave himself for us as if we didn't get the point earlier to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's just one sampling from Titus about how strongly we ought to be preaching the role of good works as an outgrowth of an understanding of the gospel of grace, even more so in a place that doesn't, a culture that doesn't practice it. I'm sure when you talk about 
your Christianity with someone who lives in another part of the country. They'd say, California, oh, California is a terrible place, debauched place. It, it should be a church in a place like this, which is, may not be as bad as they think. It may be worse than they think. But there ought to be an emphasis from the pulpit of the grace of the gospel driving people and even rebuking them sharply to be all about good works. Not just all about good works. There's a good word, zealous for good works. Number four, I like this, the power of adorning the gospel. And again, get the culture here. Crete is known as a bad place, a debauched place, a party, you know, island. That now is something that is being sharply rebuked, at least it's commanded to be, by Paul to Titus, to the leaders of the churches. And there's this great statement in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, And he's going through these various groups, not just older men, younger men, older women, younger women. We get into people that are in, you know, subservient roles of employment, the bond servants of the day, the slaves of the day, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which again, that is what the island is known for, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may, and it's just a great word, and I'm glad that uh, I think the NAS translates it adorn, the NIV went to something else. But I love that the ESV translates it that way, to adorn, which maybe I shouldn't be happy about that, because it's a bit of an old word. But the idea of it beautifies the doctrine of God our Savior. The whole point about evangelizing this island and seeing churches that are evangelistic set up, the point is you better live a life that makes your your Christianity attractive to adorn the doctrine of God. I hope the people on your cul-de-sac, in your neighborhood, on your street, know that if there's an issue, if there's a problem, if there's something that goes down, I mean, you're the first there to offer the good work of what it is to be a kind neighbor. Let's just think of it that way. That adorns the gospel. They know you're a Christian. They should if you're a real Christian. You're, you're not underground. And the idea of you being known for those good works, that's just adorning the gospel. Just a great thing. The power of adorning the gospel. I hope you're known. You may be known as the Jesus freak, but I hope you're known as someone who is doing the kinds of things that really, if they think about it objectively, is like, that That guy's a good guy. Number two, 2 Timothy. I know you want the data on 2 Timothy. Chapter four, four chapters, 38 verses, no, 83 verses, and 1,238 words. So 483, 1238. That gives you a sense of comparison. Getting smaller here, at least between First and 2 Timothy. I put it last because... As you remember, we have First Timothy and Titus going in two different directions, to Ephesus and to Crete, dealing with all the matters about setting up the church, organizing the church, vetting the leaders, all of that. But now we got Second Timothy, and we do, we, we're, we're going to cover that after Titus because it comes chronologically after Titus. Of course, the author is stated, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, it's Paul, the apostle. We won't even debate that. Even the people that want to deny that this is Paul writing this letter, they will say things like, this was some adoring second, third generation disciple of the, of the apostle that wanted to write a book in tribute of him. Well, if you think about the things that are written in First Timothy and, and Second Timothy that don't put Paul in the best light, the greatest of sinners, there's none worse than me. And even how he laments his loneliness at the end of this book, Paul wrote the book, I'm, I'm quite confident. The date. This is the last of his letters. That's why we deal with it last. He's nearing his execution. Look how it's put in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And think back to Philippians, for instance, the prison epistles where he's constantly talking about getting out. I'm going to get out. Even in 1 Timothy, he has this sense of release from his Roman imprisonment. Now he's back in Rome again, and he's in prison, but he doesn't speak with the optimism, like, I know I'm going to get out. To live is Christ, to die is gain, but you know, I know I'm going to get out because that's fruitful labor, and I'm going to get out. None of that. Now he says, for I'm ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He knows he's on his last leg here. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. According 
it says, to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So I know that I'm done. I've, I've come to the end. So this is the last extant letter we have from the Apostle Paul. And I would guess it's probably the last letter, who knows, but it's the last canonical letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. And it has that sense of finality to it. I think I gave you the date, 64. It's got to be, at least in terms of persuadable evidence regarding his death. We believe that he died under Nero's reign. I don't know if anybody picked up that book after Acts that I recommended last week, but you can see there's enough evidence to be convinced he dies under Nero's reign. Nero is no longer the emperor after 68 AD. So we're going we're gonna to put his death at least before 68, 67, AD 68, 67. The persecution that ramped up and our understanding of what went on to get Paul re-imprisoned, and again, we speculated about that, but the idea of that to come back to this prison and to, to face his death, we assume is after Nero ramps up the persecution of the church after the fire of 64, the great Roman fire in 64. So that's the window. So I'm just going to say roughly 64 AD, but that's the window. Paul's execution had to be before 68, and it was likely after the fire. So 64, 65, that's the date. The recipient, we know the recipient, Timothy, the purpose of the letter. He knows it's his final book, at least to Timothy, and he's writing his final words. And of course, the Holy Spirit that's driving him to write this book knows it's his final, and it's, it's all about final words. Looking forward, if you look carefully at this, to the church beyond himself. We get all these great passages about passing the baton on and about what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who be able to teach us also. All of this ongoing work, and he, he says it like he hasn't said it in any other book. So he's looking forward to the work of the church and the advancement of the gospel beyond his life. And uh, so we get this book that summarizes his final, his final words. Simple outline. You want a simple outline. I know that's what you want. Number one, I'll just summarize it this way. Do not be ashamed. There's a lot in Paul that you'll feel. The urgency of Paul wanting Timothy to man up. And you see that. And you think about him being in a place where he thinks, I'm done. I'm not going to get out of this prison. Uh, my life is over. Right? I'm already being poured out. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. He's thinking now, these guys have to pick up the mantle of my ministry in all these places. And I need Timothy to man up. We'll talk a bit more about that when I talk about my favorite things. Number two, to be faithful to God. The chapter, I think, could be roughly summarized that way. Chapter three, to love the scripture. Chapter four, to preach the word. It's a great, great set of exhortations to Timothy. All of them driven, and you can feel emotionally them driven by the Apostle Paul knowing these guys are going to have to carry on what I've started here, humanly speaking. Don't be ashamed. Be faithful. Love the, love the Bible. Preach the word. And obviously, there's more in that than and can be summarized by those simple statements. Favorite things. Let's get back to what I just talked about. The war on timidity. Let's call it that. I called it manning up, but there's no place for timidity in the Christian life. I don't care what your demeanor is. I don't care what your personality is. I think Paul even makes a case, in, particularly in 2 Corinthians, that his manner is naturally diminutive. His manner is naturally meek and mild. His manner is not even being a strong speaker. He says those things. He comes to preach. He's nervous. That is Paul's natural disposition. And yet, of course, he is changing the world by a very bold and unashamed kind of ministry. Look at these texts put together here. Verse 7. For God, he says to Timothy, gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and, and self-control. Verse 8. Do not be ashamed 
This is a constant refrain in the book of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, which is a test case, right? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm not ashamed of Christ, but now you're like the most famous Christian out there, Paul, you're in prison. And if you stand with me, you're going to take flack because people know me better than they know Christ. So are you willing to not be ashamed of me? And here's the problem. We want to be ashamed and we want to back down when we think it's going to cost us something. And he says, no, you got to be willing to share in the suffering for the gospel. Verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I believe. There's a little bit of backhanded insult there, right? Come on, you've got to know who you believe. I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do, do you know that? I mean, come on. And then he adds examples. Like Onesiphorus, he says, he's often refreshed me. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. Here's Mr. O who knows Paul in prison. He's not ashamed. We don't even know anything about this guy other than the fact that he's not ashamed. He keeps holding up example. Timothy, you cannot be timid. You cannot be ashamed. You've got to be willing to stand up and be counted with Christ. And if it costs you, it costs you. But you can't be timid. And I think that's a good thing for you to think through in your Christian life, whatever the challenge might be as it relates to your Christianity and the things that make you afraid. You've got to tie those things together and say, certainly the first chapter of Timothy is a good place to go to remind yourself, I cannot be afraid. I've got to let the chips fall. And I've got to be someone who recognizes the incompatibility of a Christian life that is, that's fearful, the war on timidity. You should wage war, declare war on your timidity. That's, that's what I'm asking you to do. One of my favorite things. Number two, which again, I don't want to get autobiographical, but there's so much I could say about this. This has had to be in my life from the get-go. And I know you don't believe that. You're like, oh, I don't want to go there. But I'm just telling you, you're not going to do anything, I think, effectively for God if you're driven by your own fear, if you're concealed and constrained by being afraid, particularly what people think. You've got to get past all that. Number two, a call for spiritual replication. We're supposed to replicate ourselves. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, I've already quoted it, which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I don't know if you remembered or if you read it, the book I wrote on raising men, the first chapter, I go back to Genesis and I look at all the things in Genesis that is describing what men are called to do. And one of them is replication. I look at the biological call to be fruitful and multiply. And I recognize that throughout the scripture, the ultimate ideal is the ability to be single and be content in your singleness. And if you are, that's great. Well, how does that in any way reconcile itself or harmonize itself with the call to be fruitful and multiply? And I think Paul's a great example. Jesus is a great example. Even the prophetic words in Isaiah 53 about Christ having these descendants of his, his followers, his people, his children, if you will. And the apostle Paul looking at Titus or Timothy and Silas talking about his true children in the faith, the replication of our lives really biologically is nothing more than a context in which to spiritually reproduce ourselves. Did you catch that? Biological reproduction is the opportunity for us to spiritually reproduce. And you know what? You don't have to have kids to spiritually reproduce, right? Matter of fact, the ideal would be you could spiritually reproduce more if you didn't have biological kids, if you didn't have a, a biological spouse. That, that's a picture in scripture that's set up as an ideal. And the Bible says we're all called to spiritual, spiritually replicate, not so that you can have more quiet time on your own or be by yourself. It's so that you can invest in more and more people. And we're called to spiritual replication, to reproduce ourselves spiritually. If you got kids, you start there, obviously, but you go beyond that. Even if you have a slew of kids, a whole quiver full of kids, you ought to be doing more spiritual replication beyond the borders of your home. I know that's debated, but I think I could make that case. Are you spiritually reproducing? I guess that's the point. And it's not just about you winning people to Christ. This context is about you investing what you've had invested in you in them. And we need to step it up. All of us need to step it up. 
You should be involved in partners if you're not involved in partners. And if you're not involved in partners, you've got a good reason, great. You've got a good reason. It's not in the Bible to be involved in a partners program like ours, but if you want a place to start and you feel like you can't stand before the beam of seat of Christ and say, yes, I'm spiritually reproducing the things that I've learned about Bible study, about my prayer life, about fighting temptation, about involvement in the church, those are things that systematically can be broken down into something that we put together in a book that says, okay, let's try and reproduce this in someone else. It's just an aid to do what should be done. You're doing it great without a crutch, great, fine. You'll have to stand before Christ. I'm going to stand before Christ for myself. You will stand for yourself. But if you need some help, I think things like partners is a great way for you to get involved and reproduce it. Number three, real Bible ministry versus arguing. And perhaps this was driven in part by not just what I had to deal with in the last couple days online, but things I had to deal with recently. God doesn't want us to be argumentative. God wants us to be involved in real Bible ministry. And I like the juxtaposition of those two things in this passage. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 14 and 15, remind them of these things. It's not that Ephesus is saintly and Crete is not. I mean, certainly Ephesus has got its problems. So he's got to do the same thing to charge people and do the right thing and all the rest. But he says, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. But do your best to present yourself to God as one approved worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The concept of being truly spiritually reproducing, to take the Bible and to take the truth and to reproduce that in other people's lives is not about you being argumentative. And so much of that is going on today. Behind the privacy of people's computer screens or their phones, being able to say things that they think is really advancing the cause of truth, but really is nothing more than wrangling about words, or in this case, quarreling about words, as it's put in 2 Timothy 2.14. It doesn't do any good to tell people, stop it. Stop. It's no good. I mean, I've just been in, I've been in the middle of this stupid debate, which I have not participated in at all, that I think to myself, just can you guys just do something productive for someone? Can you go and try and help the cause of Christ somehow? Can you share the gospel with someone today? You're spending hours debating each other about stuff that goes nowhere. Number four, ready to be useful. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 20 and 21. It's always a challenge. I hope it's a challenge to you. Go to your tool chest and you've got your favorite tools that you like. You got a bunch of tools in there, but there's certain tools you like. They do the job. They do it well. You might have 25 screwdrivers in the screwdriver drawer, but you got the one or two that you just think are the best or most useful. That's how God wants us to view the church and view ourselves. And he speaks in terms of, of vessels or things that you might use, pots or, or, or bowls or whatever it might be. I think in terms of tools. Now, in a great house, a big house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, things that you say, these are my valued vessels, but there's also common ones of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use, some are for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, now some people misunderstand the illustration because he's reusing that word. But the point is, he both in front of this and after this is going to talk about things that make us honorable or dishonorable dishonorable. And now he's saying you will be an honorable vessel. You'll be a useful tool, as I like to put it. You'll be a vessel for what is honorable, honorable use, set apart as holy, special, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If what? If you can get all these other things that are inhibiting you out of your way. And by that, I'm talking about the moral, ethical things, the wasting of your time, the the sinful things that trip you up, the sin that so easily entangles you, the more you can strip that from your life, God is going to reach down into the toolbox and grab your life and utilize you for ministry. And I think that's so important. It's not about you just injecting yourself into every opportunity, although I'm all for that. Be assertive. But I'm just saying, God's going to open doors for you to be useful for him as he sees your life 
in order? Are you spending time in the Word? How's your prayer life? Are you evangelizing people? Are you the kind of person that really cares and loves the people of God? That's the kind of thing that God looks for and reaches down into the toolbox of the church and uses those people greatly. So be sharp, and God will will use you. Favorite thing number five, insight into true opposition. When you have true opposition, and we all have some, there are people that oppose you. I was talking early this morning with someone who has... A lot of problems at work and a lot of opposition and a lot's going down. And I think to myself, that's the kind of opposition. It's not because you've done something wrong. It's not because you've messed up. It's not because you've been a jerk. It's because they're just, if you didn't have God, there would be no earthly explanation for it. But the Bible talks about servants of Christ. And I picture this guy as being one of those in his environment. And the point is, as I exhorted him this morning, don't be quarrelsome. You got to be kind. You got to be kind to everyone. You got to be able to teach You may not be a preacher or a teacher, but you ought to inject what is right and what is true, patiently enduring evil, correcting your opponents with gentleness, that God may, and I love this, here's the insight, he might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses, because as you share it with me, I think that makes no sense, and I agree, if you're telling me the truth, there's no earthly reason for this kind of opposition to your life, and that they may escape, here's the real truth, the snare or the trap of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. Diabolos, the devil, the opponent, the adversary. He wants to go after Christians. We learn that clearly in the general epistles, and we'll get to it. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's going to do that with real opposition. I'm not talking about opposition that you cause yourself because of your own cause and effect problems. But when you are opposed by a neighbor, by a coworker, by your boss, by your employees, whatever it might be, you got to look back and say, if this is not discipline, if this is not self-caused injurious things that I've done, then I'm saying Satan is involved in this. He's trapped those people. And I've got to pray. That gives me a bit more sympathy, even for my enemies, to recognize the fact that what I'm hoping is through a proper, godly, virtuous, gentle response, God may, and it's more prayer than strategy, might grant them repentance so that they can escape this illogical snare of opposing who we are. All right, that's just great. I think of this passage often, and I think you'd do well to do the same. Number six, a clear forecast. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when I think about Crete, I know we're in Ephesus now, but when I think about Crete, I think, you know, Crete is a picture of a degenerate society. The society that we're in is forecasted to get more and more uh, degenerate. Understand this, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And he goes on with this long list. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, They're materialistic, they're proud, they're arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list goes on. That, to me, is a reminder that things are going to get worse. And there's so many people wringing their hands and so worried and so frustrated and so what's happening, what's going wrong with this country or this world or our state. I'm just saying I'm not a fatalist. I'm not not injecting myself for good. I'm not failing to be salt and light. But I do recognize this. When things get worse in our society, everything's right on schedule. And that's helpful to know. I give the illustration often about my mother-in-law's house up in the mountains or a little cabin. And, you know, she gave us directions the first time we went. And I think we were going at night. And then there's this nice road and a lit road. And then there's a road, a road without lights. And the closer you get, then you get into a narrow road. And then you get to a single lane road. And then you get to the end of the road. You get to the dirt road. Then you get to big ditches in the road. And then you don't think you're doing right. But if you see a clearing between two trees, turn right and head up the hill and you'll be there. That kind of set of instructions gives you a sense that when things get more and more difficult, I'm on the right track. That's the picture. 
And, and in our society, I don't want us to be hand-wringing, you know, pining away for Norman Rockwell days in America. I, I want us to recognize this is our challenge, and this is where we're at. There's a clear forecast. I'm not a fatalist. They call dispensationalists or pre-trib, pre-mill guys like me. They, you don't care. You, if you really cared, you'd be out there like these Dominion Theology guys or these Kingdom Now guys, and you'd be trying to change society. And I had a gal on the patio arguing with me two months ago about this or a month ago. We don't know doing what we're supposed to do. I, I, what I'm supposed to do is be an agent of the gospel. I'm supposed to change people's lives. I'm supposed to do what Paul told Titus and Timothy to do, which is to care about people's hearts and lives. And it's not about trying to somehow return us to the glory days of Crete or Ephesus or America. I know that the forecast is that it's going to get worse. Well, that's negative. No, it's a good thing to know that, isn't it? To know that there's a storm coming. It's helpful. Not to scare us, as I said through that series that we recently preached in Luke, it's to prepare us. Number seven, the perennial need for exposition. Great, great passage. Every preacher should love this text, and I think you should love it if you love the church, because this is what you should demand of your church, and you should care about this in the ministries that you're a part of. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through three. Listen to the prelude to this command. Listen to, I mean, you couldn't really stack enough words up here that could be more urgent and meaningful and weighty than this. I charge you. We've already started with words that are like, whoa. You know, I come home and tell my wife, I charge you, right? This is, wow, what are you about to tell me? No, I charge you, listen, in the presence of God. Oh, no, no, not just the Father. And Christ Jesus, who, by the way, honey, is the judge of the living and the dead. And by the fact that he's going to come, he's almost here, the appearing of his kingdom, right? I mean, think about you preface anything with that. This has got to be huge. Paul's about to die. He knows he's leaving. And he says, you know what you guys got to do? Timothy, preacher boy, you got to preach the word. You have to make the scripture central in your ministry. And don't just do it when it's in season and everybody goes, oh, we'd love to hear more sermons. Do it when it's out of season. And what kind of preaching? Reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It was free XM radio weekend last weekend in my Jeep. I don't pay for it. I'm cheap. I just don't pay for it. But it came on, so I'm flipping through the channels, and some of my friends got the the text because I couldn't help it, but I found the Joel Olstein channel. And and so my family was in the car, and I we were eating lunch, and I pulled out my phone, and I started recording to see how long it would take till I could get a really juicy, heretical statement to send to my friends. It took me less than 20 seconds. And I thought, this is what they love. There will be no Mike Fabares station on XM radio, I can assure you. It's not going to happen. We're not going to have to build an arena for my preaching or anybody who shares my doctrinal perspective. It's not going to happen. But he can fill an arena in Houston, and he can have the best-selling books that aren't just in Christian circles from Christian publishers, but from the New York Times bestseller list. Because it doesn't take you long to recognize that the people in pulpits today in the name of God that are out there feeding millions of people the tripe that they call Christianity is nothing other than giving people what they want to hear. That's just what they want to hear. It's about you. It's about you first. It's about you being a good guy. The clip that I caught, just I should text it to all of you. And you know, maybe it was tongue in cheek, but it's okay to lie as long as you realize you're looking out for number one. You're looking out for yourself. And and it's the I know it's got a context, but I thought this is just outrageous. Life's about you. Christianity's about you, and that's what really matters. Look out for you. Well, that's not what this passage is about. To preach the word, rebuke, reprove, exhort. Uh, and do it with complete patience and teaching. I go through each of these words in a book I wrote on uh, preaching that changes lives. Those words, if you just 
to pick those words out and went through them, you'd recognize the kind of preaching that you and I should really appreciate and insist upon, even if it's not comfortable. If it's comfortable, according to this passage, it's probably not what we need. Okay, that's 2 Timothy. Back of the page, the general epistles. The general epistles are also known as the Catholic epistles. You ought to write that down because at some point you're going to hear that phrase if you haven't already, and you may be confused. I don't want you to be confused. I'm not talking about Roman Catholic epistles. We finally got to the Roman Catholic. No, Catholic as in general or universal. Most of you know that. Maybe you don't. It's the first time you're hearing it. Jot it down. Make sure you never forget it. In certain circles, scholastic circles, in church history, you use the word Catholic, even in the creed, you talk about the Catholic church. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic church under the pontiff of the Western church in Rome. We're not talking about that. We're talking about general, the universal. That's what the word means, universal or general. Why are they called that? Because these are the letters that are not, with some exceptions, not addressed to specific places. They are general epistles, not just that they're not Pauline epistles or Paul's epistles. They're to general audiences. Now, there are exceptions. Two exceptions right out of the gate very clearly are Second and Third John. The other one that we're going to look at is First Peter, but it's the broadest, most specific, far broader than any of Paul's epistles. And we'll look at that. One thing, of course, that distinguishes them is they're all named after the authors and not the recipients. They're all named after the authors and not the, the recipients. And I say all, let me accept that, except the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is not named after the author. Every other of the general epistles, from First Peter all the way to Jude, are all named after the author. As you look at Paul, Paul's epistles, they're all named after the recipient, whether it's the individual, Philemon, First, uh, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, or the Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, etc. Those are the Catholic epistles. I don't call them the Catholic epistles, but even New Testament survey books, you'll open it up and you'll have a section on the Catholic epistles. Those are called the general epistles. So I already gave you the general word for these epistles or these letters in the chart. Okay, let's get into Hebrews. It's a big book to get into. How big is it? I'm glad you asked. 13 chapters, you know that. There's 303 verses if you never counted them or added them up. And 4,000... 953 words in the Greek New Testament, almost 5,000 words. If you want to compare the size, that's between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians about 6,800 words. 2 Corinthians about 4,400 words. It's right between the size of those two books, 16 chapters and 13 chapters. And in this case, 13 chapters. So it's longer than 2 Corinthians, although they share the same number of chapters. 13, 303, 49, 53, for what that's worth. The early church said, we don't know who the author is. The early church said... We don't know the author. The early church said that. The early church said that. That's helpful to know. They're a lot closer to it than we are. And they said either it's purposefully anonymous or we really don't know. So that's helpful. When the earliest church in their descriptions of it say, we're not sure who wrote it, that's a good place to start. The Eastern church said, it's Paul. We think it's the apostle Paul. The Western church said, we don't know who it is, but as the church went their directions and developed, the Western church said, well, we don't know who it is, but it's not Paul. They had guesses, and we'll look at some of those guesses, but they said it's not Paul. And here's why they said it's not Paul, and this is why you should probably conclude it's not Paul. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It's in the first warning passage. Five warning passages, we'll look at those. But how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's a repeated kind of phrase and concern throughout the book. Then he goes on to say, it was declared at first by the Lord. Okay, the gospel message, yep, the Lord, that's Christ. And it was attested to us... Think about this, via, in the middle of, by, by means of, those who heard it. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by, gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So the Spirit of God gave gifts to people who confirmed the message to us. 
So there's the Lord gave the message of the gospel. We received it. And between us is this group of people that heard it directly from Christ. And they were doing miracles and signs and wonders. Us, if this is the apostle Paul, he puts himself in that third category, a step removed from Christ. That is not the way the apostle Paul would ever talk about himself. Now people talk their way around this. And they did in the early church or the Eastern church as it developed. And still there are many advocates today. A lot of hardline fundamentalists say it's got to be the apostle Paul because we can't have a book in the New Testament that we don't know who the author is. But there's a lot of motives for people. But I don't think it's the apostle Paul. You may read people that think it is. That's great. I just would want you to put Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 next to Galatians chapter 1. Or even Paul's defense of his apostleship at the end of, of 2 Corinthians. If you look at those and you just compare them, you're going to go, I don't see how in the world Paul could ever say something like that. Because he made it very clear. I didn't get this from men, he says in Galatians. I got this from God. I got this from Christ himself. I went out and Christ appeared to me as one untimely born. He delivered this to me. So that's why the Western church has been pretty emphatic. And I think most biblical scholars today wouldn't entertain the fact seriously that Paul was the author. If so, you've got to do a lot of gymnastics with that passage to try and talk your way around it. Some would say it's Luke. And the reason some people say it's Luke is because the Greek in Hebrews is a lot like the Greek in Luke, which is to say that if you're taking Greek, you're probably not going to spend much time in Luke or Hebrews as a beginning student because it's very hard. You want to spend your time in like John or first and second and third John. John's letters are easy in terms of Greek style, syntax, vocabulary, just the simplicity of how it's all laid out. You get a lot of unique vocabulary words in Hebrews. You get a lot of unique vocabulary words in Luke. You get a very hard, difficult Greek style in both of these books. And they try to tie some people who make the case some specifics, but usually it's based on, on the manner of the language itself, and that's why some would say it's Luke. Now, I've often leaned toward this, not just because Martin Luther really emphatically said it, but because it seems to match what we find in Acts 18. At least it's one suspect. And that is Apollos. Apollos is described this way. Now he's talked about in 1 Corinthians as well, but Acts 18 describes him like this. Now a Jew named Apollos, now of course this is written to the Hebrews, think about that, the Hebrews. Right? It's all about that, you know the book of Hebrews, at some, at some level you know it. And so we've got a, a Jewish powerful preacher here, as he's described elsewhere, but here he's about to describe this way. He's a native of Alexandria, right, northern Africa. He came to Ephesus. He was, now look at this, an eloquent man, certainly you could say, that the language and syntax and, and grammar of Hebrews is, is eloquent. Competent in the scriptures. Tons of scriptural content and quotations. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. And we get the historical situation of what's going on in Ephesus there as Paul deals with him. But the point is in describing him, like, wow, that it sounds like a good candidate. And that has been uh, someone's name has been kicked around and Martin Luther, the reformer in the 16th century, certainly made that case as strongly as he could. Probably I would go back to the earliest church and Origen, who's very early, right? He was late 2nd century, born 185, I think, to the mid-3rd century. Origen said this, God only knows. And he's close to, to it. He was also from Alexandria, Egypt, North Africa. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way for us to leave this authorship in Hebrews. Now there's a lot more guesses. Barnabas, Clement, you can read about a lot of different ideas, but none of them are are overly persuasive. Is it problematic? I guess it is on a small scale. It's why some early Christian communities didn't want to accept Hebrews as part of of inspired scripture. They didn't want to recognize its authority because they thought, I can't even vet who it is who wrote it. But the church overwhelmingly I say overwhelmingly, at least the large majority of it said, no, we, we do recognize this as God's word. That's a topic for canonicity in our bibliology series, not here. 
the date of Hebrews. Speaking of Clement, in 1 Clement, which is the earliest, I mean, one of the earliest, at least, extra-biblical writings, even the Didache, if you know that word, the early writings of the teaching of the Twelve, Didache means literally the teaching of the Twelve, 1 Clement even precedes that, late first century, probably around the time of the book of Revelation, maybe just after that. It's not canonical. Some people have made it required reading, and some have considered it canonical from time to time. But First Clement in roughly 95 AD refers to Hebrews. It quotes Hebrews. So we know that's the terminus, right? Can't be any later than 95, because it's already quoted before the first century is up. The present tense references throughout the book about the temple. It's always you know, comparing the new covenant with the old covenant and the centerpiece of the old covenant is the temple and it speaks of it as though it's standing there. Well, you know the temple was destroyed by Titus, not the pastor, but Titus, the Roman emperor, soon to be Roman emperor in 70 AD. So there's one absolute undeniable and the other one is by inference or at least we deduce it from the fact that the temple seems to be still standing when this book is written, which of course I think that's a pretty solid conclusion. We're just going to estimate 65 there is, there is a hint or two in the book about it looks like this is going away. And I don't know that I take that the way some commentators do, that this is going away. The temple is going away in the sense that it is under threat of Roman extermination, but that it's, it's going away theologically even. I won't get into that. The point is, I, I'm going to put it at roughly 65, AD 65. There's a date for us. Recipients. Let's call them this, Jewish background professing Christians. I think everything about that sentence is worth writing down. I'm hoping you're writing down a lot of this, but Jewish background professing Christians. That'll solve you a lot of problems, especially if you make clear professing Christians. Just like in every church, I think I may have written that down. Yes, like in all congregations, there are real Christians there, and there are Christians in name only. There are Christians that sit there, that act like Christians, they look like Christians, they smell like Christians, they just are not really Christians. And so this letter that is sometimes considered to be a sermon or a homily that has been recorded, this brief word of exhortation, as it's called in the book, if if this is a sermon, then it's clear you're going to preach a sermon like I preach sermons and think, okay, I got Christians and I got non-Christians. But most people here think they are Christians, but I know we've got a lot of people that they're a Christian in name only. If it's a letter to these Hebrew background, I call them Jewish background professing believers, well then it's going to be the same mindset. There's a lot of professing Christians here that are not Christians. Well, obviously it's called Hebrews because it's to Jewish background people that are claiming Christ. But it's important for us to realize there are real and not real Christians. They're wheat and the tares, as Jesus put it. They are persecuted. That's one thing, right? They're having their property confiscated. There's a lot of people under threat of domination by the by the Romans, which may be another hint that this is nearing 70 AD. There was a revolt that took place. Of course, we've talked about all that in the background to the New Testament. But nevertheless, they're being pressured to revert to Judaism. There was a lot pushing these folks to go back to Judaism to be the kind of at least accepted religion by the Roman state. Let me put it this way. Rome looked at Christianity as an upstart sect. Matter of fact, as you even see in the book of Acts, it's known as a a sect called the Way. Judaism was understood by the Roman government as an existing kind of, of, of recognized religion. It's like in our culture. If you had Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Christians, you go, oh, those are, you know, those are the, you know, those are standard long-term traditional religions. But if you had Ted's religion or, you know, Fred's religion, you'd be like, well, that's weird, right? Well, that's how Christianity was viewed. And so the persecution that was breaking out, and if you look at the date, I put it in mid-60s, you've got Nero, who is definitely, you know, ratcheting up the, the pressure on 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 the Christians. There's a sense in which if I want 
to be kind of a completed Jew, I can go back to Judaism and not have the pressure and the persecution of the Roman government. Because Rome is more friendly toward Judaism than than it is toward Christianity. Nevertheless, they were persecuted and pressured, and the pressure was not just from the government, but obviously from other people within Judaism to say, you need to come back to the ways of the temple and the priesthood. What's the purpose? Well, in two words, don't defect. It's a, it's a warning. The book is filled with warning about not going back. Now that bothers people. Matter of fact, most people that think, well, you can lose your salvation. They're going to quote the book of Hebrews repeatedly. But I think in part, you got to recognize before you just jump to conclusions about the sections of, of Hebrews that have this sense of don't defect, don't defect. This is a cultural historical context of drawing people back to Judaism to try and see if I can keep my Christianity somehow and my loyalty to Christ and not suffer the persecution and pressure of the Roman government and those that like my, you know, my mother-in-law or whatever who are saying, come back to the temple services and bring your sacrifices. Don't defect. It, to put it in other terms, leave behind those Old Testament ceremonies. Leave them behind completely. Sever them. Get, get them out of your life. They are, as it's put in the, in the book of Hebrews, they are obsolete now. They are no longer have any place in the Christian life. Be done with them. I quoted Martin Luther, at least in his interest in saying that Apollos wrote Hebrews. I'll quote uh, the other Martin now, and that's Walter Martin, who's a wonderful bride. His widow goes to our church. I don't know if you know Darlene, and if she's listening, I'll quote your husband because he has one of the most pithy purpose statements of the book of Hebrews ever. So here you go. In honor of the late Walter Martin, he said, the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews telling the Hebrews to stop acting like Hebrews. (laughs) That's really good. Yes. So Darlene, your husband had it right there. That's, that's great. That's it. Book of Hebrews written by Hebrew, other Hebrews telling the Hebrews, stop acting like Hebrews. I had to share that. All right. Okay. A simple outline to the book. This is not easy. It's the most complicated outline I've had so far, but I want to at least give you the sense of the progression of the book. I've got sub points on this outline, which I don't think I've had on any other. So here we go. Christ is better. The first 10 chapters, ellipsis, Christ is better, dot, dot, dot. Then first chapters one and two, let's just be rough and dirty about these references better than angels. Why is that important? Because the Jewish people thought, and rightly so, that the angels were the messengers of the law on Sinai. They delivered this message. Even the angel of the Lord in the burning bush to Moses, angels were super important in Jewish theology. And here he's starting this book by saying, guys, let's just start with this. Those angelic messengers, it's not like Jehovah Witnesses or cult groups would tell you that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Christ is better than angels, categorically better than angels. Christ is better than Moses. Now you tell the Jewish people he's better than Moses. No one was better than Moses. He was the ultimate prophet. And yet you look in the scripture, there's a prophet that's going to come after you. That's going to be this great prophet, this prophet after my own heart that's going to come. And, and that is Christ. And that's the point that's made. Christ is better than Moses. I put it this way, and I've changed this over the years as I've outlined the book of Hebrews many times in the past, but he's better than the conquest. Chapter four, I put it different ways before, but if you look at it, the real concern is about Joshua and the conquest and the rest that Joshua was going to bring. And he's better than that. He's better than what Joshua was promising. Letter D, he's better than the priesthood, better than the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron's priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi, Moses was the tribe of Levi, his brother Aaron, Aaron was the first high priest, the priesthood that came in Levi. You couldn't be a priest unless you were from Levi. Christ is better than the Levitical priesthood which got them thinking about how in the world can Jesus be better than Aaron because he can't be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, which is really helpful if you want to be the king of Israel because the scepter is not supposed to depart from Judah, which of course he can claim to be king, but he can't claim to be 
a priest. And that's where Melchizedek comes in. We'll look at that in a minute. E, he's better than the old covenant altogether, the whole thing. Matter of fact, here's where we see that it's obsolete. The old covenant, obsolete, the whole thing. Better than the temple. Everything about Christ and all that he brings, this new covenant and the realities of worship in the new covenant, better than what you had in the temple. And I say had, he didn't say had, he says has. Present tense references in this section to the temple. He talks about a spiritual temple. There's a temple in heaven. That's the temple that Christ went into. He had a high priest going into an earthly temple. That's a house. God can't dwell in that house. There's no house, as Solomon said when he built it, that can house God. But there is a place where God lives, quote unquote, this place that he lives in, this heaven in this place, this palace, if you will. And Christ went in as our representative there. And he's better than the sacrifices because he himself was the sacrifice. He was, God the Father prepared the body for him so that he would be the payment for our sin. Better than angels, Moses, conquest, priesthood, old covenant, temple, and sacrifices. That's really the gist of the book. And then the last part of the book, which we have interspersed in between those, these warnings, but then we have it all just come together. Don't defect, endure, hang in there, persevere. You must be faithful to the new covenant. You can't go back to old covenant ways. It's a whole different flavor and take than, than Galatians or Romans. It's one of the reasons not Pauline. Even the whole argument is different. But it is very strong and it ends in the same place. Like Paul said, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ is no value to you. Right? If you're going to trust in the ceremonies, you're done with Christ. And, and the point here is the same, only it's very different in its argumentation, but it comes to the same place. You cannot defect. You cannot, even as we saw in the pastoral epistles, you can't have these Judaizers that want you to go back to Judaism. You can't have that and Christ too. It's either or, it's not both and. So there's the outline. Better than Christ, don't defect and endure, but we've got to get the subpoints A through G of these better than angels, Moses, conquest, priesthood, old covenant, temple, and sacrifice. Helpful? Okay. Favorite things. I do appreciate this. The angelic job description. It's the one place in scripture where we have one verse talking about, and it's so flattering if you think about it, that God would say that these angelic creatures, you would say, what are they for? Well, they're for worship. In this passage, look, they're, they're ministering spirits. Minister, what does that mean? Servants. They're serving spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The think of the angels now who just are mind-blown, I'm sure, that God would care about lame people like us, people that don't get it. We're so dumb compared to angelic creatures. And, and God is saying, they're my trophy, they're my focus, I'm redeeming them, I'm not going to redeem your fallen brothers, the demons, I'm going to redeem them, and now you guys are there to serve them. I mean, talk about a humiliating job description, but that's what they're, 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 they're called to minister to us. Now, there's so much we could say about that. I did a whole 12 weeks on angelology, but if you want one book that kind of just takes you through it, this is my old professor uh, when I took a course on angelology called Angels, Elect, and Evil. It's a helpful start on just thinking through what all it means that they are ministering spirits by Fred Dickison, C. Fred Dickison. Great professor, great man. I enjoyed sitting under him, the late Fred Dickison which I don't think, by the way, not that I have time for this, but in Hebrews chapter 13, when it says, show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares without knowing it, I don't think we're talking about angelic beings there. I guess you'll have to go to my sermons on that passage, which I did preach years back here at Compass, where you can figure out why I don't believe we're talking about the angelic spirits there. There's plenty of examples in the New Testament of using that word for human beings that are doing God's work. All right, number two, I love the bold warnings, as you figured I would. There are five of them. 
Here they are, if you want to be real quick with your pen. Chapter, two, chapter, three, chapter 2, chapter 3 and 4, chapter 5 and 6, chapter 10 and chapter 12. And I just picked a phrase out of them that give you the sense of what they are. Here's a quote from each of them. How are we going to escape? I already quoted that one to you in chapter 2, verse, verses 3 and 4. How are we going to escape? That's chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse, chapter two, verse 3 is what that is, I think. How are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Um, the second warning. They're not going to enter my rest. I swear they're not going to enter my rest if, if, if they continue on, right? You hear his voice, hardener, don't do that. Um, in the end, that plant that's not bearing fruit, it's, gonna, it's at risk of being cut down and burned. I mean, these are harsh warnings. Chapter 10. I mean, how much worse would it be for you to neglect this New Testament salvation and trample the Son of God and His blood under your feet than to reject the Old Covenant? This is worse by magnitude. How much worse punishment would you deserve? Stern warning. Chapter 12, another strong warning that ends with this. Our God is a consuming fire. There's nothing left for you if you're going to turn from Christianity as it's presented to you, but nothing but the fearful expectation of the judgment of God. And it ends with, and our God is a consuming fire. He's going to shake everything. So those five warning passages, and the best thing I ever did early on as a Christian, I remember taking my uh, Bible to the library when you had to put you know quarters in to make copies. And I made copies of the whole book and I taped, tape them together to make this long, you know, like a scroll, long piece of paper. And I went through with a a red highlighter and I took the sections, which, you know, goes back to to the first study I've ever, in depth study I ever did of, of Hebrews and made these sections that are the warnings and just looked at the layout of the book. You can create an outline of the book, but every now and then you get these harsh, firm warnings throughout the book and to tie those together. When you do that and get the overview of the book and you can just glance through it and see red, 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 and understand how everything works between these arguments, I'm sorry, how everything works between these warnings, the argumentation, you get a real good sense of what this book is all about. And it will help you to not go into the book and just cherry pick verses about, well, see there, it looks like, you know, you, you can lose your salvation, whatever your argument is as it relates to these warning passages. I think you need to see it all in its context and understand how these warning passages work within the historical context of a group of people that are being tempted to go to a religion that's mainstream and still try to keep Christ in my back pocket. It's a defection. It's a apostasy. It's a compromise that is filled in Paul's uh, in the writer of Hebrews' mind with uh, great dread. It's war- you should be warned of the five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. I love the clarity about the Sabbath in Hebrews chapter four verses eight through ten. And I guess the reason it needs clarification, think about it, is because everyone's going to talk about, and people that try to argue about the Sabbath are going to do it based on the fact that it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and, and they're going to say, well, all those other commands, they seem to be uh, moral commands, and now you've got this, this command about the Sabbath, and you're saying that's not a moral command. You're saying it's a ceremonial command. Well, I'm saying it's a ceremonial command because it's repeatedly called a ceremonial command in the Old Testament, a sign between Israel and God. But nevertheless, people say, well, what about that? Well, I believe there's one ceremonial command in the Ten Commandments. That's what I, I clearly conclude. Nevertheless, uh, I'll try to give this some clarity with the time I have here. If Joshua had given them rest, which is one of the seven rests that are talked about in this text, I'll try to outline it for you in a second. God would have not spoken of another day later on. Even there, you start to get the picture that the prophetic type of what the Sabbath was was looking forward to something in the future. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Even there, you have a reference to the beginning of God resting on the seventh day, right? You had this Sabbath day rest that God did. And now, again, a picture of all these other rests that lead to the fact that one day there will be a, uh, not one day, right now there's available a rest that you can enter. 
By the way, Sabbath means rest. That's what it means. So every time you see the word rest in chapter four, you have a picture of the Sabbath. And in one sense, you have the ceremonial, and not in one sense. In one reference, you have the ceremonial Sabbath described and seven others. What does that look like? It looks like this. There are seven different rests or Sabbaths that are described in Hebrews chapter four. And if you can take a look at this, it's way too tiny for you to see, isn't it? Okay, sorry. I'm going to look at it. Listen to me as I look at it. The first rest I just referenced here. God rests at the end of the creation week. That's a picture of rest, not because he was exhausted, to set us an example of work and rest, which is often spoken of, not in a ceremonial sense, but in a pattern of work and rest. It's a template of work and rest. There's another rest, a rest that is ceremonial, that is looking forward to Christ's finished work. That's the tie in the scripture here between the rest that God now gives in the Ten Commandments, in the ceremonial law of Moses, looking forward to God's rest that is provided in Christ. That Mosaic ceremony continues from the time of 1445 BC until we get to the cross when the temple veil was ripped and all the ceremonies become obsolete according to the book of Hebrews. He then speaks of a third rest, the physical rest of going into Canaan. No longer are you going to be slaves in Egypt. You're going to go into Canaan. The problem is they forfeited that. Moses' generation, they didn't believe it. They sent in the spies at Kadesh Barnea. They came back. They didn't trust them. Caleb and Joshua were forsaken and not listened to. And so... They said, God said, fine. And he uses that as an analogy now. If there's rest available for you and you don't take it, nothing but judgment for you. You're going to be locked out. Then there's a fourth rest talked about in this passage, a fourth Sabbath, which is Joshua providing rest for them once they do enter the next generation. We're going to have all the adults that are going to die off. Then everyone young going to grow up in the desert for 40 years. Then they're going to enter that rest, a temporarily achieved rest in Joshua's day. But then Psalm 95 is quoted in verses 7 and 8, where there's another spiritual rest that's yet to come. And that rest is based on the fact that Joshua entered the rest in his generation after Moses' generation, but there's another rest that's coming. Here is, much like the Melchizedekian promise of a priesthood, there is now a fulfillment that is looked forward to in the coming of Christ, the rest that really matters. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's exhorted in the middle of the, of the sixth decade of the first century, the, writers of, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to rest. What does that mean? Rest from all of your work and trying to somehow please God by what you do. You need to trust in the finished work of Christ. That is the rest. Obey Christ and trust Christ and trust in the finished work of what God has done in Christ. That now is available to you from 33 AD on. And he's exhorting them after the cross to leave behind the ceremonial rest and grasp the real rest. Well, that rest remains and it is available to us until in verses at the end of this passage, you have the reference to the book of Revelation saying there's an ultimate rest that's coming. The rest of us entering into our final rest when we stop fighting the flesh and the devil and the world system and we enter into God's ultimate rest when he dwells with his people. Now that's too much for you to read, but you can at least see the concept of it. This picture is the kind of teaching you get in Hebrews. It is rich, it is thick, it is multi-layered, and it takes a lot of thinking and careful exegesis to go through this book to see how layer by layer he's replacing all these things, whether it's the importance of angels to Judaistic theology or whether it's the Sabbath ceremony and all of the implications of that in the Old Testament or till we get to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is the next thing I should at least touch on. One of my favorite things about Hebrews is the challenge. And I call it that because it's presented to us as a challenge in chapter 5. He says this in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He speaks of Christ being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, period. 
Put a pin in that, and then he's going to not get back to it for a while because he's about to rebuke them. About this, what? Christ being the Melchizedekian priest, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Greek word is nothros. Nothros is a great word. It means and translates elsewhere, lazy. You are lazy. You're spiritually lazy. You're intellectually lazy. You're not biblically alert. You're biblically lazy. We'd like to talk about Melchizedek, but you're lazy. That's a challenge. Do you take that as a challenge? You should take that as a challenge. That's one thing I love about the book of Hebrews. For though by this time, you've had enough time. The Kairos and Kronos, two different Greek words for time in the New Testament. Kairos means the opportunity. It's not saying Kairos. It's not saying you've had enough opportunity to be teachers. Not that. It's saying you've had enough Kronos to be teachers. You've had enough ticks on the clock for you to be teachers. You've been Christians long enough for you to know this stuff, but you don't know this stuff. Why? Because you're lazy. You're nothros. You're, you're dull of hearing. For now, instead, he says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Body slam, right? Can you see it? You just got slammed. You just got owned by the writer of Hebrews. And he's saying, you should know Melchizedek. I don't think there's a Christian that should read through Hebrews and, and not say, wow, okay, game on. I want to learn about Melchizedek. And you should be able to explain Melchizedek to someone who asks you. Which, by the way, on the radio program today, someone calls in as they do about once a month and says, tell me about Melchizedek. I don't get it. And I quickly ran through these kinds of distinctions on the phone call today. And that is this. Priests can't be kings and kings can't be priests. That's very clear. Second Chronicles 26, when a king tried to be a priest, broke out with leprosy, wasn't good. God's mad when kings try to be priests or priests try to be kings. And yet Christ, the great high priest, the Melchizedekian priest, he is a priest and a king. Why? Because there was a historic figure that predated the Levitical priesthood in the time of about 2000 BC, which is 600 years before the Levitical priesthood. You've got a guy named Melchizedek who comes on the scene in Genesis 20. And guess what? He's a king and he's a priest. And he's legit because Abraham bows down and gives him the tithe from the spoils of war. And God accepts that. And he comes from a place called Salem. He's the king of peace. That's what the word means. And historically, guess what? It's the city of Jerusalem. So he's coming from a place that ends up being a later Jebusite city, which David ends up taking. It becomes the citadel of David. It becomes the capital of Israel. And there was someone God put providentially there 600 years before the Levitical priesthood, who is a priest and a king, which was not allowed after the Mosaic law. Priests die, they need replacements. Guess what? The whole argument here throughout the middle of the book of Hebrews is Christ is resurrected. He lives forever. He's seated at the right hand of God. He needs no replacement. He's not going to die. He's our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Old Testament, priests were great, but Jesus is greater. That's the whole point of this section of the book. Jesus is the great high priest. He's greater than everything in Israel. Priests in the Old Testament were priests by prescription. And I mean that prescription like a doctor giving a prescription. It was something that was supposed to, Ill, to ease your conscience just for a while. And that's all it could do because all it did was treat the symptoms. But Christ is the great high priest by oath. God has established him. He's supposed to be a strong encouragement for us because he's done the work. He's completed the job. Priests, just weak sinners. They were wounded healers. As I put it here, they were bad golf instructors. They weren't very good, but they did the best they could to help you with your game. But we all sat around saying, we really are not good at this game. That's how they were. But Christ comes on the scene perfectly vindicated in every temptation, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's the perfect high priest. He goes into the presence of God. He represents us. He is exactly what we needed. The high priests of the Old Testament were decent because God established them for a reason and they did a job, but Christ is the ultimate priest coming from Judah, not from Levi. How can that be? Because he's of the order of Melchizedek, which was prophetically stated, by the way, in Psalm 110. So Genesis, we got the story in 2000 BC. 
You've got David writing a psalm in 1000 BC about this Melchizedekian priesthood. And then a thousand years after that, Christ shows up and says, ta-da, I'm a great high priest and a king. How can that be? Because I'm a king and a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. If that was too confusing for you, I preached like three or four sermons in Hebrews on the topic of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And you ought to take it as a challenge to brush up on that because the writer of Hebrews just body slammed you by saying, if you don't get this, you're lazy. That's what he said. And since the Holy Spirit breathed out this text through him, you should take that as a divine challenge. Unless you're a brand new Christian, because then there hadn't been enough chronos for you to master this. But if you're a teenage Christian, I'd say if you're a seven-year-old Christian, you ought to have this. I just picked that number out of thin air, but I think you ought to be able to know something about and how to explain the Melchizedekian priesthood. I love the hall of faith, the little play on words in the hall of fame. People call it that in Hebrews chapter 11. I've threatened to write a book about this chapter. It's a great chapter about the great people there. I was speaking of Twitter. I was slammed pretty hard by quoting this passage one day, or I referenced this passage and someone said, oh, everyone in the Bible, they're all losers. They have this lowly worm theology about themselves. I don't think that is how we ought to view great men of faith, great women of faith. The Bible doesn't see it that way. What more shall I say, the writer of Hebrews says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. That is trying to hail, as the rest of the New Testament does, people that do what they ought to do because they're trusting in Christ. They become strong in their weakness, and those are people that are rightly listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, there are many, many other people that are discussed in more detail. But I love that. I tried. I tried. We came close. No, you really didn't. 75% is not close. All right. We'll get First Peter next time. How about that? Lord willing. We'll do that. All right. Yes. Even that's not going to encourage me tonight. I, I, I said it tonight. I said, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do all four books. I'm going to do it. And I didn't do it. So let's pray. We need prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We joke about the time and all that, but what a privilege it is to study your word, to get into your word, to think about your word, to even get into these general epistles and think about what a rich book that we have here in the book of Hebrews to remind us of how eager we should be to learn your word, to think about Titus and to know how zealous we should be for good works adorning the gospel by our behavior. Thinking of Second Timothy and the call to love the preaching of the word, to demand it, whether it's applauded and, and, or whether it's despised, to preach it in season and out of season. God, thanks for your word. Let us become more deeply in love with you, the author of the word, but God, help us also to recognize what a valued treasure we have in the word. Our spiritual forefathers risking their lives to get this book in their own language in print, to see it distributed in places where it was banned and illegal. God, how great it is for us as Christians to have access to it, not just on paper, but electronically on our phones, on our laptops, on our iPads. What a wonderful privilege we have to be students of your word. Let us study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And thanks for New Testament survey that can help get us there as we contemplate and even mull over these things in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.